I'd just like to welcome everyone to the final Community Matters call for the year. Um, these are brought to us by the wonderful folks at the Orton Family Foundation. And today we are talking about building communities for all ages. Um, I'm going to run through a quick agenda and some call protocols and then introduce our speakers and uh, and then we'll just open things up for a good old chat. Um, this is, like I said, the last call of the year, so please take every opportunity to jump in and join the conversation. Um, and we'll finish up the call today with some key actions that people can take, so we'll hear from our speakers and they'll be able to give us some great advice. So um, just uh, a few protocols to the call. Um, this is a conversation. So really take advantage of, of having access to these really great speakers and, and ask them all the questions that you want to and really just jump in and share some of your insights and ideas and experiences because we'd love to hear from you all. Um, like uh, like we just said, if you're not speaking, we're expecting a bunch of people on the call. Um, and, uh, and so we are asking if you would just put yourself on mute and... Um, and add any notes that you have into a Google Doc that, that you should have access to, and I'll be using that to moderate. And so if you want to ask a question, write it down, put your name in there, or just throw your name into the document, and I'll call on you, and, um, and we'll all be able to join in and have a great chat. So at the end of the call, we'll be making a recording available, so you'll be able to listen to this um, at your leisure. And we'll also distribute a PDF of any of the notes that we create today. So with that, let's dive in and get started. Um, I just wanted to start with a, a short introduction from the blog post on communitymatters.com. Um, this was put together by, by Rebecca and starts with this really great sentiment that I think is a really good frame to this conversation. Most communities struggle to help their elders age in place. And most communities work hard to help families and youth. Few connect the dots, but the ones that do often find unexpected successes to all of their age groups and in a number of other places. So I think to really kind of kick off and carry, the, carry on this conversation, um, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Phil Stafford, Director of the Center for Aging and Community at Indiana University, and also the author of Elder Verbia, Aging with a Sense of Place in America. We're also joined by Alyssa uh, Clement Mitchell, Director of Network and Outreach for Generations of Post Development Corporation. Uh, I know we have a couple of other people that would be great to hear from. We've got Nancy Henkin on the line, who's the Executive Director at Temple University's Intergenerational Center. Um, and so now uh, I'm going to hand over to Phil to do a quick introduction. Well, um, thank you very much. And um, we've been given about seven minutes to uh, sort of open up the conversation, and because I have a tendency to blather and wander, I actually have some pretty tight notes here that I'm going to go through. Um, and we were asked to uh, sort of introduce ourselves within this context as well. And um, I'm a, a cultural anthropologist, uh, and I think that provides um, me with a, a certain lens that I use when I look at issues of aging and disability. Um, <clears throat> aging is like gender. Um, biology provides the substrate, but it really doesn't come close to exhausting its meaning. In our Western biomedical model of old age, we tend to privilege chronological time and the body. Uh, we assume that being 65 or 75 or 85 tells us something very important about a person, and we assume that aging is all about bodily change, and you only have to watch evening TV to know we're obsessed with the aging body. Uh, those of you who have heard me before know that I believe aging is not about time in the body but about place and relationships. So that instead of asking when is old age, as we typically do, we should ask where is old age. So the appropriate place to locate old age is not in the body, but it's in the relationship of the body with its surroundings, with the social, the cultural, the physical environment. So aging and disability and health and illness refer to the balance between individual capacity and environmental demands. Now, this is familiar territory in the disability movement, but it's really not taken over in the field of aging, especially within the popular discourse where aging is seen primarily as a personal challenge. 
taking aging and disability out of the body clearly politicizes the issue, and we can begin to move away from talking about disabled people and begin talking about disabling environments. So we've left the land of the clinic where aging is a medical problem and entered the land of community planners and activists. This totally shifts the paradigm. While individual needs and services remain important, the emphasis shifts to the community context in which individuals are embedded. So our task has naught to do with fixing old people or people with disabilities. It has everything to do with creating good places to grow up and grow old. So how do we do that? Um, that's been my passion for 35 years, um, and a lot of that work is, is summarized in my book, uh, Aging with a Sense of Place in America. Um, I'd like to report we've made a significant impact, but most of the work actually remains to be done. We're still at the starting line, mostly due to one significant obstacle. Um, that obstacle is the siloed nature of funding streams, policies, programs, and the accompanying disciplinary thinking and speaking that fragments the communities we live in, much like modern medicine fragments the human body. Much of the planning we have done, and perhaps planning is too kind a word, has segregated older people from other age groups and from the community at large. Consider that shiny new continuing care retirement community, or CCRC, constructed in the former cornfield on the edge of town. Public officials love the jobs created, as they should, and everyone is proud that we have taken care of our seniors. But what are the social and environmental consequences? An entire group of individuals are more dependent on the larger community for their transportation needs. The CCRC provides for an entire range of needs that were formerly met by the natural community and accessed by virtue of one's own labor, a restaurant, a chapel, a bank, a library, an arts program, whereas many of these services came at a cost to the consumer previously, of course, um, they're now commodified into one package with one vendor and little consumer choice, as these are now essentially built into the rent you pay, which makes this option unaffordable for the vast majority of seniors and undercuts spending in the community. The entire model is premised on aligning our cultural expectations and consumer desires, our very definition of what old age should be about, with aging as a medical problem on the one hand and aging as leisure and consumption on the other. And I haven't even at all touched on the related problem of the contributions of these developments to sprawl. Now, there's a lot of wonderful work going on to create livable communities for all ages and abilities, um, and several of you are on this phone call, not only in the United States, but really in places all over the world. And what I do is but one approach among many, and I don't have a magic bullet. For the last 12 years, I've been heavily involved with the development of a planning model called the Advantage Initiative. It's an aging-friendly community framework organized around a comprehensive community assessment in four domains, basic needs, physical, mental health and well-being, independence, mobility, and social and civic engagement. We developed a survey tool that originally involved a 25-minute randomized telephone survey, followed by a comprehensive and participatory strategic planning process. This was conducted in over 25 U.S. communities from uh, 2000 to 2008. And in 2008, we conducted the same survey statewide for Indiana, reaching 5,000 older Hoosiers with the survey. Because of the high cost of such a kind of a scientifically valid approach, we're now funded to develop an online methodology, and we're piloting this in New York City, Sonora, California, and Georgetown, Texas. In Indiana, we're gradually attempting to evolve towards a more lifespan approach with our Hoosier Communities for a Lifetime project. One goal is to build bridges from the narrower elder-friendly communities framework to work going on already in the disability and livability movements while also trying to cross silos in housing, transportation, supportive services, healthcare, and the arts and humanities. We are announcing an RFP this week, as a matter of fact, for planning grants to support data-driven, heart and soul, or participatory planning in three Indiana communities. The first funders in are the State Housing Agency and the Governor's Council for People with Disabilities. We're developing companion legislation for the Indiana General Assembly and have been working closely with the Indiana Grantmakers Alliance to help create a place for private philanthropy in this form of comprehensive community development. It's one of my goals to slowly expand the effort in the direction of an all-ages perspective. 
Those of you who have attended Community Matters conferences have heard over and over from public officials their concerns for the forces at work spin both young and old people out of their home communities. I want to see us reverse these forces which are destroying both urban neighborhoods and small cities and towns all over the country. Doing this work turns us into environmentalists, sustainability activists, and historic preservationists. When both young people and old can stay put, the place benefits. As Wendell Berry has written, a community, if it is to last, must exert a kind of centripetal force, holding local soil and local memory in place. So that's where I wanted to end. Um, and um, I did want to make one uh, comment back to the shameless plug about the book. Um, I encourage people not to go to Amazon if they're interested, but to go to the press itself, ABC Clio, uh, where the uh, book is actually half the cost of it is of, of the uh, price on Amazon. So I'm gonna, I stop there. Okay, thank you, Phil. That was uh, that was a really great thorough introduction. Um, we're going to hand over now to Alyssa to give a little background on her work with Generations of Hope. Alyssa, do you want to take it away? Sure, thank you. Um, again, my name is Alyssa Toman Mitchell, and as Bonnie said, I'm the Director of Network and Outreach for Generations of Hope Development Corporation uh, in Champaign, Illinois. Um, a little bit about my background, I have a Master's in Human Development and Family Studies and a Master's in Social Work, um, and I'm currently working on a PhD in Human and Community Development, and in my previous work in community mental health settings, I continually saw the need for connection and relationships not just for people with, you know, certain challenges or mental health issues, uh, but everyone needs connections and relationships in their lives. So my work with Generations of Hope and the Development Corporation is, is really focused on making connections and facilitating those relationships. Um, and as Phil mentioned, people, people are often siloed, you know, in their own little areas. Older adults are in retirement communities. Um, children are in schools and daycares, and, and there's it's often little thought about combining them or integrating them. Um, and that's why I'm so interested in this call today and, and much of the work that's going on or, and being done by some of you on the call. Phil, for one, Nancy Hankin, to, to name another. Um, but before I tell you about my work and the organization that I work for, I want to tell you about the foundation of our work, uh, which is a community called Hope Meadows. Uh, Hope Meadows was founded in 1994 by a nonprofit organization called Generations of Hope. Uh, it's an intentional intergenerational neighborhood that was created to support families adopting children from the foster care system. Uh, in the mid-1980s, uh, the founder, Dr. Brenda Cross Ehart, and her colleagues at the University of Illinois were researching uh, adoptive children and their families and what happened after those adoptions were finalized. And what they found was that in many cases, families lacked the support they needed to make the adoptions uh, and thus their families successful. So Dr. Ehart determined that the families needed support, both from professionals um, but also from their friends and neighbors. So she created the community of Hope Meadows. Um, utilizing a, a decommissioned military base, they created housing for three generations, the children that were being adopted from the foster care system, their adoptive parents, and then senior citizens. So we have older adults aged 55 and older who volunteer in the community. Uh, they receive below market rent in exchange for their volunteer hours. Um, and they really just work with the children and the parents, the, the families in the community. Um, they help each other and they give back to the community as a whole. Um, so the, the community of Hope Meadows really promotes permanency and caring relationships um, among its residents and has been successfully operating since 1994. Uh, in 2006, uh, we received a grant from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation to develop a new organization called Generations of Hope Development Corporation, which is who I work for. And uh, we were given a task of um, exploring the Hope Meadows model, the, the intergenerational community model, uh, and applying it to new social challenges or, or issues, which I'll talk a little bit about in just a minute, um, but also to help create new communities across the country based on that model, uh, communities that we're calling Generations of Hope Communities. And as I said, we're extending the model and the idea of a supportive intergenerational community to a wide range of social issues. Um, the original community, as I said, was created to support families adopting children from the foster care system. But we've been approached by many different people interested in adapting the model to teen mothers and their children, um, youth aging out of the foster care system who were never adopted and, and don't have a permanent home or place to call home. Uh, developmentally disabled adults and their aging parents who may no longer be able to care for them. Um, and recently, um, 
veterans returning from Afghanistan and Iraq who need a supportive uh, community, just to name a few different, some of the different issues we're working with. Um, so we're working with groups across the country who are interested in this idea of a supportive intergenerational community, um, but also an intentional community, so creating literally a neighborhood, a physical place that people all live together um, to really help legitimize this concept of an intergenerational community, supportive community, um, and to look at the way that social services are delivered. Um, we want to kind of shift the way that we address social challenges from reliance on traditional and often fragmented and siloed social service systems to a more holistic response um, based on relying on your friends and neighbors um, as, as sort of a first line of support and service. Um, many people are familiar with intervening in families and communities when there's a problem you know, to address failed adoptions or foster care placements. Um, intervention in community can support those people. However, we believe that community itself can serve as the intervention. So the strategy we use in the community is called ICI, Intergenerational Community as Intervention. So really it just means that the community, the friends and neighbors, the people living in the, in the community are providing that support and service. They're helping their neighbors um, when they're sick and can't get to the doctor or need a ride to the doctor, can't get to the pharmacy to pick up their medicine. Um, someone needs emergency child care. Your neighbor can come over and help. Um, and, and provide that support in the community. There are several communities in operation um, that were inspired by Help Meadows that have sort of taken the model and adapted it in um, several across, across the country. Um, another community uh, in Portland, Oregon, just opened this year. And then we're working with several groups across the country um, in North and South Carolina, New Orleans, uh, one in Ohio, Washington, just to name a few, um, who really want to take the model and adapt it to different social challenges and issues, um, but keep the core philosophical principles, which are the three generations, um, older adults serving as volunteers, um, and that it's, that it's focused around a social challenge. So giving the community members and residents um, a purpose and a sense of um, unity, that they're all working together against, one, not against, but for uh, a common purpose. And so that's sort of the, what we do, um, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you have. Fantastic. Thanks, Alyssa. That's, uh, that's also a really great introduction to your work. Um, I know we've got Nancy on the line. Nancy, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but um, would you be interested in doing a quick intro to, to introduce yourself to everyone? Sure, and I'll try to be quick. And uh, Phil and Alyssa, thank you so much. I was just at Generations of Hope, what, a few weeks ago, Alyssa? Um, yeah. It's a great place, and Phil and I go back many, many years, so I appreciate, uh, you know, um, all your contributions. Um, at the Intergenerational Center, we had been doing intergenerational programming for many, many years, um, maybe 20 uh, at that point, and realized the importance of really place-based initiatives and changing, you know, cultural norms and values, not only creating programs that bring young people and older people together. So we got a, um, we started a program, we got a grant from the Kellogg Foundation, Additionally, to set up Communities for All Ages national initiative, and we now have 23 sites um, in California, Arizona, Michigan, Minnesota, Florida, New York, um, I know I'm missing some, but Mississippi, um, where we're bringing key stakeholders together to help communities address issues from a multi-generational perspective and really promote the well-being of all groups. And we're in very rural areas in the middle of Mississippi. We're in Latino barrios in San Clemente, as well as uh, you know big cities like Phoenix and all around Arizona and Yonkers. And I think what's so interesting that we found is a lot of what both um, Phil and Alyssa said, this you know real desire for connection, um, but also connection and contribution and collaboration and collective action, like four C's, that that um, in order to get out of silos, and I saw someone had a question about this, but you really need all of the above, that you need to work on the social network aspect, which is just so beautiful at Generations um, of Hope. You need to work on the you know policy level and the institutional level and a lot of what Phil is doing. But it's also about promoting um, this idea of collective action and giving people opportunities to engage in the community and be leaders. So... You know, we have four strategies. One's about um, building cross-sector alliances with people who aren't necessarily working on the same thing but have this opportunity to work together. Another's about empowering, engaging residents. Another's about creating places, gathering places and practices for cross-age interaction. And the other is to address issues from a lifespan perspective. And I think it's been fascinating to see rural communities in Mississippi 
deal with, you know, obesity and wellness from a lifespan perspective. In Moose Lake, Minnesota, they're transforming a hockey rink into a lifespan, a multi-generational um, uh, wellness center. In Yonkers, they've brought together people from all different organizations. They have lots of organizations to collaborate and work on um, uh, healthy exercise and nutrition. And, and um, I think it's, a, as Phil and Alyssa said, I think this idea of collective impact, how do we bring all these groups together to think about creating places that are good for growing up and growing old. And then it may look different whether you're a rural area or a small town or an urban area, a neighborhood in the middle of an urban city, or um, if you're primarily uh, one ethnic group or another. A lot of our issues are around tension across cultures as well as across ages. So I could go on and on. So I don't know if that's a, you know, we've learned a lot. We've learned about how hard this is. Um, it takes a lot of energy. It takes people really feeling that they can win something out of this and that collective impact and and, and just collective action will lead to everybody um, benefiting. And I think we're always struggling with the turf issues that exist in every community. And so this is one way of kind of moving beyond um, the turf issues and getting out of the silos and really getting people to create a shared vision around issues that are important to all ages in the community. Thanks, Nancy, and thanks for, for giving such a coherent uh, and inspiring intro on the spot there. Um, one of the questions that's coming up a, a couple of times that I'm seeing in the document here is is around this concept of silos. So I'm wondering, and maybe Alyssa, I'll pass it to you to kick us off and, and then Phil and Nancy jump in. Um, there's a couple of questions here. If you can just kind of talk about what this concept of silos is um, and then some ideas of how you actually start to overcome those. Sure, and I, I think it's... A, um the term is used in a couple of different contexts or in ways. Um, both physically, people are siloed. For example, older adults go into retirement community, move into retirement communities, or place in nursing homes or assisted living facilities, um, is, is one example. But the main problem that we're finding is that, is that the money is siloed. So the money from largely the federal budget, the federal um, government, is is sectored. So it's, you know, this money is for senior citizen services or older adults. This money is for children and youth. And this money is for education. Where really what we need is is a, a pool of money that can combine services and that you can draw from um, the same pool to serve older adults and young people. And so really when people um, are creating intergenerational communities or programs, um, it, it's a challenge to find funding for them because the money is sort of designated for this population when why wouldn't you want to combine those populations and facilitate relationships between between the two or three or more yeah, that's a really great point so do you uh, do you want to add to that I know uh, you I, I would also say uh, our institutions are, are siloed so that um, when they engage in planning particularly strategic planning and long-range planning they're um, they're not. That's not done in an integrated fashion. Um, we, what we need is a more kind of a convergent uh, strategic planning in our communities. Um, uh, hospitals um, uh, plan without respect to uh, transportation needs of individuals. Um, uh, my standard example is the senior housing in the cornfield, which is um, uh, where the site plan or land use decision making actually creates a problem in transportation and um, um, so we, uh, uh, we 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 suffer from a lack of institutional integration in that regard and uh, I think that uh, relationship building is one place to start in overcoming silos I think anybody who's entertaining a project of any kind needs to first do a really exhaustive analysis of the people that have a stake in a particular issue and um, then develop an inclusion plan, if you will. In other words, who needs to be involved in this issue and in what capacity and um, if, who, if we know who that is, how are we going to invite them in? And if we don't have contact with them, who's going to be our intermediary? And um, um, that means that 
uh, we should take advantage of people in the community that are those connectors that Malcolm Gladwell talks about, the culture brokers, the people who are boundary crossers and um, can play a very, very valuable role in helping break down um, silos in the community. And um, I think that uh, um, one of the consequences of um, thinking in terms of silos is that we often don't understand the consequences of our actions um, uh, and we have unintended consequences. So we need to do a, a kind of a social impact analysis, I think, when we make decisions around these issues in our communities, kind of like the Amish do, really, when they're considering something as simple as uh, adoption of a new new form of technology. They spend quite a bit of time thinking about what will be the impact of this new technology on our, on our culture and our social group. Uh, and do that in a systematic way. Um, and um, I think that helps um, identify uh, the potential social consequences of the actions that we take in society and that, that we should really be doing this in a, in a uh, deliberate and systematic fashion. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, yeah, I, that, that's a really, really great point. And, and Nancy, I think uh, you touched on this as well in your introduction. Um, do you have any examples of really, uh, really inspiring ways that, that people or communities have overcome some of these different barriers that exist? Well, I think, um, and I agree with everything that, uh, that Alyssa and Phil said just now in terms of the challenges there. Um, in our case, the funding mechanism has actually led to collaboration because in order to get some support, and this is a collaboration between us and Kellogg and, um, and community foundations in each of the communities, we say you have to come as a, a team. So you have to identify people from your community, from um, from different organizations representing different sectors of different ages, and come together and, and apply as a community-related team. So the funding is an incentive and actually has worked, and it's been amazing to me that even for small funding grants, you know, for small planning grants, you can get people to really change the way they work with each other. Um, I think then it's really important to get people to create a shared vision, and that's been challenging because people... You know, as been said, they have their own mission statements. Every organization has their own mission statement. They have their boards. They have their way of going about um, accomplishing their goals and to start figuring out where's the space that's really the shared vision and how do they really come together and build on the assets that each of the organizations has. And I'm not even talking about individual residents right now, which have to be included, but also the you know organizational shared vision. And in a place like Yonkers, where there's been always tremendous competition, I've been working there for many, many years, and it's a very, very challenging place to work. But in the southwest part of Yonkers, which is low-income, minority and um, and many, many nonprofits, a number of groups did come together to say we're overlapping, we're doing similar services, there are major gaps, and so you have, you know, the YMCA, the YWCA, an organization called 55 Plus, which is about older adults, um, Groundworks Yonkers, which is um, doing some, you know, gardening and, and physical infrastructure work, and um, a number of other places have actually come together and looked at what do they all have to offer and how can they, you know, create this um, joint uh, initiative that really promotes healthy eating and um, physical exercise and, and health. And it's amazing. They really, what's shocking to me is that they had no idea what each other was doing. I mean, people just don't seem to spend the time to figure out what are people doing. Phil, so you were talking about the assets mapping. Um, you know, how do you understand where you can fit in the big picture versus your organization only has to do uh, you know, is the one who's responsible for doing everything. And what's sad to me, though, is in some in some cases right now, when people are just driving to survive, rather than reaching out, sometimes they're pulling in, saying we have to be that organization that does this. When we say you need to, you know, really foster collaboration, and that's being a leader in your community to foster collaboration. So there are many, you know, there are many, many. Um, Examples, and I just wanted to say the other thing is that, that organizations have a hard time incorporating the assets of residents. So I think sometimes it's very hard for organizations to figure out how do you do joint decision making with people in the community as well as with organizational staff. And um, I think that's been a challenge in many of our communities, just figuring out how to have that you know collective voice, which is everybody who is impacted by the actions that are taken. 
great, great points. And, and sorry, Phil, did you have a follow-up? I say a lot of um, uh, public decision-making in, in communities um, uses this sort of model of public input, um, um, which by its very definition is not a two-way uh, relationship. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, uh, Daniel Chemist, who writes a lot about this stuff, um, talks about there are public hearings, but there's not a whole lot of listening going on. And, and many of the venues that are available for people to express themselves are kind of intimidating um, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the wrong time, the wrong place, uh, require a certain um, way of being uh, in order to participate and be legitimate. And uh, these are all things that, that reduce community participation and decision-making in a community. And, and so we need to develop, um, continue to develop new technologies for participation um, in communities. And um, uh, there's lots of room for creativity uh, in, in that whole area. Um, but so on that, on that, Phil, um, and Alyssa, I'd love to bring you in on this. Um, when you're talking about developing new technologies and creating these opportunities for uh, increased participation, how, how do you do that specifically to target um, the aging and the elderly populations in, in communities. Alyssa, you guys are having a lot of success. Do you want to talk about some of the, the tools and sure. tactics that you're using? Sure. And it, it's interesting. I think, I think Nancy, you mentioned this both on the call, but we also talked about this at the conference a couple of weeks ago. A lot of people think, you know, when you have senior volunteers or older adults coming in to give back that, you know, you tell them, okay, we need these envelopes stuffed and we need this task done and, um, why don't you mentor this kid and you'll see him every Tuesday afternoon. And, and those programs um, can have benefits and things do get accomplished with, with some positive outcomes. Um, but we've found that really people become more engaged, are more interested in contributing um, if they're able to build up on their strengths and utilize their strengths. Um, we have older adults in our neighborhood who love to garden, and so they take care of the community flowers and they provide decorations for parties. Um, we have people who quilt, and they make quilts for, the, for each, every child in the community. Uh, we have several retired teachers, and they tutor the children. So really it's, it's utilizing what they're interested in doing and, and giving to the community and the children and the families in their own way. Um, it's also important to not just give them busy work, like I said, like stuffing envelopes, but to really let them build um, what they want their role to be. Um, we also, another important, from the very beginning, another important concept was we don't match senior volunteers with children and families. Um, everyone lives in the, in the neighborhood and everyone has equal opportunity to form relationships and connections. Not everyone is, is going to establish that grandparent relationship, um, but some do, and that's great. But we aren't going to say, okay, you know, Phil, you're uh, John's grandparent now and you need to see him every week. We let the, the relationships and the connections develop naturally and sort of emerge um, in, in the neighborhood. We facilitate that by by creating uh, events and activities and, and ways for that relationships to emerge, but we try to let it happen naturally as opposed to in a controlled or contrived setting. And really we found that's most beneficial. Nancy, you and I have had this conversation before about uh, sort of the evolution of work and intergenerational um, issues that there was a time when it was all about programming. Right. Um, and uh, now it's about creating communities in which those relationships can emerge naturally. And, um, and in some cases, I think that is going back to a more traditional model of, of community that we have gotten away with. But um, I really like what you were saying, Alyssa, about uh, uh, creating the environment in which these kinds of things can develop. And mm -hmm. it, it turns our attention to the obstacles um, that are out there in the environment to the development of those relationships. Sometimes they're um, physical op uh, obstacles, literally. Um, they're policy obstacles, um, and uh, they are social and cultural. So I just want to take a quick moment um, to call out to anyone else on the call that might be interested in asking some questions. Make sure that you get them into the Google Doc, and I'll call on you with uh, with your name in there, and, um, and and you can join in the conversation as well. Um, don't be shy. This, like I said, this is your last chance for the year, so <laughs> jump in and join us. Um, I want to touch on a, a, another question in here um, that I think is, is uh, a nice kind of continuation of what we've been talking here. The, the question is, 
and, and I'm going to quote this, don't older residents sometimes impede community progress by trying to keep things the way they always were. And with Nancy with you and Phil, okay. Nancy, <laughs> talking about the, the change in, in, in policy and programming, um, what are, what are your thoughts on that? What, what can you, what can you tell us there? I don't know if you're asking me, but um, it's so interesting because if, if you get a group of people over 60 in a room, they've had to change more than any other group. They've had to adapt. They've lived 60 years, 70 years, 80 years. So it's always interesting to me, you know, that there are stereotypes of people hanging on because I think people do adapt and do change, and sometimes they do want to keep some of the things going. But you have to you have to present the this whole thing as an opportunity, and it's not so much I don't want to do things differently. Sometimes it's, it's how can this opportunity make our community better for all of us. And I just feel like when you give people the chance to rise to the occasion, to think about, um, you know, legacy, to think about for older people, to think about, you know, what am I leaving behind? Are these all our kids? How can I connect to the future? What do I want to contribute to make sure that these kids and grandkids are able to lead successful lives? I do feel like sometimes... Not everybody wants to do this, but the, there's so many people who do want to do it. And as Alyssa said, who want to build on their skills, build on their experiences, maybe have new experiences. But I think there are just too many stereotypes about ages versus thinking, you know, how do we create these compelling opportunities? And I think lots of organizations don't know how to create compelling opportunities. Lots of places don't. And I was so impressed with Generations of Hope because there were lots of things there that people could do based on their interest, the amount of time they wanted to contribute, the intensity of the, you know, what they wanted to do. So I, it's hard for me to agree with that. I understand that there are some people out there who, you know, may not want to change, but my 32 years of experience, I've seen so many people making so many changes and wanting to contribute to the good when they, when it's presented that way and they have an opportunity to really contribute to the common good. Okay. Yeah, I, it's, uh, it's one of those stereotypes that's sometimes true. Um, but usually, I think it's because of what we're doing rather than than uh, right. people other people are not doing. And I think um, you know there there really are not too many things out there under the sun that are truly new or haven't been tried before. And when we uh, discount the opinions of uh, people who've lived in a place for a long time or not even listened to them in the first place, we can invite sabotage. Um, because they have seen it before, and they know what people have tried, and, and um, that should be a source of knowledge. Uh, it's part of the institutional memory that we need to valorize um, when we're, you know, trying things in the community. It doesn't mean blind acceptance of the way things used to be. Right. But it does mean creating a uh, critical dialogue um, about uh, about the issue and what has tried before. And, and, and often people put huge amounts of their own... Um, there's there's their own self and their money and their activity into community change efforts in the past um and um uh it's important that that be acknowledged and um uh if if people are not acknowledged if people are acknowledged they're more likely to be involved and stay involved um if if their knowledge is uh, discounted, um, they're not likely to want to be involved. Right. And I wanted to add to that that I think there aren't always those safe places for the dialogue that Phil is talking about. And I know in some of our communities, the immigrant integration issue is huge and that there actually are real tensions between older white residents and young, in some cases, Hispanic um, immigrants. And... Um, you know, what is the role of the community in creating safe places to build relationships? So those kinds of stereotypes is not just about not wanting to change, it's that sometimes there are attitudes that aren't particularly positive. And, you know, so what, you know, how do we create those kinds of opportunities and places um, for people to get to know each other, to go past the stereotypes, to understand how they can work together and understand each other in a different way? So, Alyssa, I bet you've got a bunch of great examples from, from the work you've been doing. Do you want to share? Do you have any really great stories about individuals that you've worked with that that you could share? Um, well, I think ours is a little bit different in, in that, in that uh, the people who live at Hope Meadows choose, they have to physically come and, and move in. We're not going into an existing community. Um, but I would agree, it, it is a stereotype that, that 
it's usually not not the case once you get in and start working with the people. We've had several several people over the years um, come into the community expecting a certain thing or wanting a certain thing, and, and their expectations um, or realities have been changed. Um, I'm trying to think of anything off the top of my head right now, but I think by and large the seniors that come to Hope Meadows um, in some ways do want to revert to the way things were in that um, they think of this as a community like they grew up in. You know, when, when they were young, they knew their neighbors. Their neighbors looked out for each other. Um, you know, they, we have a senior who talks about he couldn't get down the street um, on the way home without someone calling and telling his mom what trouble he'd been in. You know, he couldn't get home before the word got back to his mother and he would be in trouble before he even walked through the door. And that's in some ways, that's kind of like Hope Meadows. I mean, everyone knows each other and, and everyone um, kind of looks out for each other. And so in some ways, that's, that's not a bad thing to go back to the way things were um, for, for our seniors to Hope Meadows. So, uh, so there's also a, a, a question here around uh, engaging young people. Um, and so the, there's an interesting, I think, tension around um, how young people are using technology. And so you mentioned um, an interesting comment there around um, using new tools to get people engaged. What, what are your experiences, um, and this is to, to all three of you, what are your experiences in uh, integrating new technologies into your engagement processes with young people and with older people. Well, um, and I'm not using technology in the uh, the, the term social media. Um, I'm talking more about uh, sort of face-to-face -face kinds of interaction um, between and among people and. Um, some of the most successful things that that uh, we've done around these issues have been have involved uh, the use of the arts and the humanities, um, a creative writing project that brought together young people and older people to talk about the concept of neighborhood, um, uh, an, an ethnography project where young people uh, interviewed uh, older people in the neighborhood around the school coming up with most insightful and evocative observations about the daily lives of older people that was very, very important for the community to um, to think about and talk about. And um, um, uh, lots of uh, activities using the arts and the humanities that allow people to interact with each other on kind of an egalitarian basis that are not um, assuming any one-way volunteerism or um, anything like that, but rather people coming together kind of on an equal plane. Um, I think those are very effective. Uh, I wanted to... I want to agree. I think that um, the arts and we've seen just having gathering places where there's a, a physical space for people to come to and then to share together because those places don't exist anymore. So in in Tucson a number of years ago, the, the library decided they were going to be um, the place for young and old to come together. And actually, they were looking at cross-cultural and cross-age um, uh, building those relationships, and they started some entrepreneurship work where some Native American elders were teaching young Hispanic and African American kids how to bead and how to do dream catchers, and then they created some, you know, entrepreneurial activities. And I think the more you can, you know, create um, opportunities for people to share their experiences and and kind of move forward and win in some way. And so this entrepreneurship program was really interesting. Um, in Fort Lauderdale, we're working now in a um, primarily African-American community, and they're creating a um, – was supposed to be a community center. Now it's an intentional multi-generational center. And they're – in preparation for it, they're going to have a – like a memory wall. And so they have young people um, interviewing older people in the community um, in terms of their perceptions of the community and where it's going. And then hopefully the older people will also ask the youth, which doesn't always happen in oral histories, uh, but to really look at the past, present, and future so you have opportunities for everybody to interview everybody else about where the community has been, where it is now, and where it's going. I would agree. I would agree with Nancy. I, I think the physical space is really important. We get the question a lot um, at Help Meadows about the technology and, and how are we incorporating that or are people using it um, and certainly we have um, some of the older adults are more technologically savvy than others, and most of the, of the kids are, um, and are often teaching the seniors how, how to use the computers. Um, 
but really the physical space and connections are, are most important. When the community was first built, we had, you know, the neighborhood and people lived right next door to each other. Um, but they, they said, we need a community center. We need a place to go. We can't just chop on the sidewalk or go into each other's homes. So the intergenerational center was created. So it's a building in the heart of the community where dozens of activities happen uh, every week. People can go there just informally to meet for coffee and chat. There are formal activities. There's an after-school program. Um, so having that physical space that people can connect is, is really important. And I, I can't emphasize enough the, important, enough the importance of good design um, right. of those spaces because of acoustics and lighting um, mm-hmm. become really absolutely critical to the, um, the acceptability and usefulness of those spaces to older adults and um, um, becomes really, really important. Fantastic. Now, I we have about 13 minutes left. I want to make sure that if there are any pressing questions from anyone on the call that you have a chance to ask them. So now is the time if you uh, if you want to give it a go, take yourself off mute and shout out your question um, before we before we carry on. I'm sure there are plenty of great insights that that people on the call have that would be great for everyone to hear. Uh, this is Paul Bray calling from Albany. Um, could I just ask generally a question about social infrastructure or you folks are probably aware of Ray Oldenburg's great uh, third places. Um, I understand New Hampshire did a statewide survey of social infrastructure. I wonder if you know anyone, any other place that has done it, in the, particularly in the context of, of considering uh, intergenerational aspects. I, I don't know. Phil, do you know? Well, no, I don't. Um, there's been some research that I'm familiar with uh, on uh, parks um, done for the National Parks and Recreation Association um, that has looked at some of those issues. Um, when it comes to third places, my favorite reference is The Great Good Place by Ray Oldenburg. Um, right, that's what and, uh But the references to... Uh, Older people actually pretty minimal in that book, um, but I, I think he does touch on some of the critical elements um, that define a good third place. And the third places may be new places or, or existing places. Um, one of our sites in Ajo, Cal- uh, Ajo, Arizona, transformed a school into a, um, a live-work community for artists of all ages and that multi-generational center. And it's and they use the arts to connect people across cultures and across ages. So it's this very vibrant place in the middle of this tiny little community, two hours um, from Tucson in the middle of the desert. But it is incredibly powerful as a place where people do come because it provides cultural opportunities, um, opportunities to have fun and do, you know, and connect with people from different, you know, different uh, populations. And they also learn skills. So there are computer classes and, and arts classes and a whole range of things that help people kind of develop a whole new level of skills. All right. Do we have any other questions from anyone on the call? Anything you want to get off your chest and noodling around in your brain that you really want to ask Nancy or Phil or Alyssa? I could just ask people to identify challenges they see because because I think you know maybe there are things that are standing in the way right now that are moving in this direction. Sure, Nancy. What what about? some challenges that you've seen. Well, I was asking them if they had challenges they think, as they think forward. I mean, I think there are a lot of, I mean, I can talk about it, but I wondered if anyone, you know, as they think through this, think that there might be something that's really standing in the way in their community. Hi, my name is Lauren from Bloomington. And Hi, Lauren. Our community is very interested in developing an intergenerational center, and I would like to talk about the best way to attract people that have influence and funding, quite frankly. And we really can't do anything anywhere near um, the size of of Hope Meadows or anything like that. But can you talk a little bit about how to get started? Because I think we've been trying to get started here for many years, and 
um, we I think it would be valuable to hear some strategies. Sure. Well, I think I'll speak from my experience. I'm sure others can chime in. Um, many people want to, to do exactly what you just said, start somewhere. Um, they can't develop a, a whole physical community in some cases, um, but they want to have a center or a place where people can come. Um, what we have found is that people want to hear about the results or what you're wanting to achieve by this, not just we want to bring uh, all the generations together, but what are going to be the outcomes or what are some possible outcomes. Um, and at Hope Meadows, you know, of course, the, the focus uh, originally was on adopting children and, and stabilizing adoptions and families, and so we can talk about our adoption rate. But really over the years, it's, it's about relationships and what relationships do for people. So there's a ton of research on the benefits of social connection and relationships, it alleviates depression, uh, and just can help with physical health. There's so much research. I think looking at that and, and pulling out some key findings about you know what you want to achieve, and these are our goals, is going to be really important in attracting funding and getting local support um, from some important stakeholders. And I was going to add that sometimes it helps to look at the community priorities. So um, if you know obesity is a huge issue, or if health and wellness, or if education, what you know, what are the big issues in that community, and why should people think that this is an opportunity to address those issues? Because as Alyssa said, it's not just about young and old coming together, which is very nice, but this is around collective action as well. So, you know, to motivate people initially, if you know, if after school programming has been cut and there's no place for pe- for kids to go, and there are older people in the community who could help them, that could be an incentive. If you know, again, rates of diabetes or you know, obesity is really huge. Um, maybe having something that focuses on wellness and bringing people together, you know, might help get funding. But I do think that sometimes it's hard, even though I think the speakers today have this lens and it can apply to anything. When you want people to get involved initially, it's helpful to have, to identify a concrete issue that they're going to be addressing by bringing everybody together. And if it's out of sight, it's out of sight. It may be that it's not out of sight first and then it moves into that. And it may be that you start using libraries or schools or existing sites and saying, how can we be more cost effective by enabling older people to take classes in schools, after school, and computers, and in return, they'll mentor kids during the day. So, I mean, they're I would get key people who are influential who are thinking about how to make the community better and then seeing where are their points of convergence and how could a place, you know, add value to what's already being done around that issue. Just one suggestion. Fantastic. So do you uh, do you have anything that you want to add to that, some key steps that people could take to get started on this kind of work? Well, I, I think that uh, that last comment was uh, sparked some things for me. Um, um, in fact, um, uh, in our in Bloomington, we had a, a very successful um, children's museum um, that was that was uh, built, and uh, it started out and operated for several years as a, uh, a program based in multiple locations. Um, and so people became familiar with the idea and saw the value of it before they ever approached anybody about actually creating a singular place for it. Great. So I, I think um, we're, we've got about five minutes left on the call. Um, what we normally do to wrap things up is to ask for a couple of key steps that uh, people can take tomorrow or next week uh, to really get started. And we've, we've really kicked that off nicely with, uh, with these most recent comments. Um, I know, Phil and Alyssa, I, I'd asked you this question uh, when we spoke earlier. Do you, uh, do you want to have um, a crack at, at adding a couple more to those, some key steps or actions that people can take in their communities to to start moving in the direction of building more inclusive and intergenerational communities? Who's that sure. um, directed to? Uh, to both of you, Alyssa, why don't you kick this oh, off? Okay. okay, sure. Yeah, I think, um, as someone mentioned, you know, starting a whole new neighborhood or building a neighborhood from the ground up in many cases is a huge task and, and not everyone's going to take that on. If you are interested um, in doing something like that or starting a Generations of Hope community or getting involved, so there are many efforts across the country um, finding about where those are, feel free to go to our website um, and use the contact us page or you can send me an email and I'd be happy to give you more information about that. 
But I think um, on more of a smaller scale, it's just thinking intergenerationally, thinking about ways to include different generations in your existing programs or in your existing communities. Um, and I saw a note on the on the Google Doc about um, for a question about uh, when you involve older adults, don't they take a lot of services and maybe take some things away from services or money that could be going to youth? And I think that's that's a concern of a lot of people. But we have found that when you include older adults, people who are traditionally seen as receiving or needing services, they're able actually to provide service or to give back. Um, so they're not not just recipients of service, but they're providing services to the community, to the families, to the children, which in turn helps their mental health and their physical health. There's also research on showing that volunteering uh, really can improve your physical and mental health. And so I think just utilizing the people in your community and getting getting everyone involved um, is a key first step. Fantastic. Phil, do you want to follow that up? I would say from a, a personal um, standpoint, it's important to realize that um, we are all aging. Um, we need to get out of our own denial. Um, it's not just the other people that are growing old. Um, that's kind of job one, I think. Um, then I would suggest, again, in terms of personal um, orientation to these issues, um, look at your own relationships. Do you have multi-generational relationships with interesting people? Um, if you do, you're very fortunate, and, and if you don't, you, you should develop some of those relationships. And, and lastly, I think it's, it's kind of looking at your community critically, observing very carefully um, uh, how older people get along in stores, and, and really kids as well. Um, how are they treated by adults uh, that are in, you know, in the intervening generation uh, in stores and healthcare settings? Um, there's a, there are tools that are available to help you look critically at your community. Um, a simple one would be just a walkability audit or a walk around the block project um, where you and your neighbors or other interested people can spend a little time just getting out and um, walking around and observing uh, critically and talking about what you've seen. Um, I think that can be a, a really great way to... Uh, tweak people's awareness um, about the uh, these issues. Fantastic. And Nancy, did you have a final comment? And, and um, well, just building on what just building on what Phil said, it's not only that we're all aging, that I really believe we convince people that aging starts at birth and continues till death, and that these are issues that affect all of us across the lifespan is an important place to start too. But I also think that. Um, you know, if there are collaboratives in your communities uh, addressing certain issues, trying to figure out how you can infuse this intergenerational lens into something that's already going on is a good place to start. It's often hard to start new, um, but this, if there are alliances already there, bringing in new people to the table, often community development efforts are focused on youth development and don't have older people at the table, or sometimes long-term care issue, you know, collaboratives don't include youth. So thinking through how do you um, add on at the beginning uh, to get people to really understand and to reframe the issue as what Lisa was saying, that this is an issue that, that can be addressed by all populations and that it's the reciprocity that's the core of this, that people get a chance to both contribute and receive services or or love and attention, whatever it is. So I don't know. I think building key alliances, building on things that exist, um, and then creating that space to help people create a shared vision, you know, down the line, and just helping them see what's in it for them. Because in the end, if, if people don't, if people or organizations don't see that they're going to benefit from this, they probably won't get into it. And many of our sites have said it's so hard to get partners, but they go and they say, I have this vision. I want to do this. We got a, you know, a grant to create a community for ladies. We want you to help. And, you know, trying to understand it's about customer benefit when you're trying to even present the concept that it's that your children in school will benefit if there are older people who are involved. And the older people will benefit if they're engaged in, you know, activities that will contribute to other people. So really thinking about how to frame this as you go talk to other people to see if they would be interested is an important thing to spend time on. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to summarize what I just heard, and hopefully this will help people uh, really go get started tomorrow. It's, it's Friday. It's a great day to get things started. First thing I'm hearing is uh, identify leaders. It's Thursday. Oh, 
uh, identify leaders and look for synergies, so find alliances and bring new people to the table. Uh, really understand your community and utilize the, the assets and skills that you find there. Um, and then look critically at your community and yourself. Do you have multi-generational relationships? And then look at your own place with a critical eye and find ways to create spaces for a shared vision. Um, so we have come up onto time. Um, hopefully the the comments and the, the great insights and experiences from our speakers this, this afternoon have been really helpful and inspiring. And, and tonight and tomorrow as you close out your week, um, it's it's good food for thought to get started on some new activities and programs in your own communities. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the call, this is the last call for the year. So hopefully uh, you'll join us again next year. And uh, if you have any suggestions for other topics that we could uh, that we could cover, by all means email them through to Rebecca, who sent out um, the call in information. Um, and uh, thank you all for your time today, particularly to our speakers and to everyone that joined us. Um, hope you have a great evening and uh, happy new year. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Thank, thank you. you.